Should you care about the macro environment? And is reputational risk really a risk? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen. Matt Kopenheffer is still out of the country. So today we are revisiting an interview we did a couple weeks ago with Columbia professor Bruce Greenwald. Mr. Greenwald is a professor of finance and asset management at the Columbia Business School in New York City and is an authority on value investing. Hope you enjoy the interview. Now, in terms of, so you're talking about different ways to value companies, and you mentioned price to tangible book value, which brings me around to, I spend most of my time working with financial companies, which that's a metric that I end up focusing on a lot. I'm curious if you have been watching the financial sector at all lately and have any thoughts on, there are a lot of people, myself included, that think that the sector may be undervalued, but there's also a possibility that that's a value oh, trap I, with this. No, no. All right. So can I talk <laughs> about what the big problem with that is? Sure. Okay. Yeah. There is one fact about investing, and it's the most important fact that you can never forget. And there are two ways of saying it. There's the Lake Wobegon way. Right. The average performance of all managers before fees has to be the average performance of all assets. Now, that's not the same as sort of academic market efficiency, which we know is not true. But if you're going to outperform, somebody else has got to underperform. I think the best way to think about that operationally is that every time you buy a stock Mm -hmm. thinking it's going to do well, somebody else is selling it to you, thinking it's going to do badly. And you have to ask what is going to put you on the right side of that transaction. Now, what's the most obvious way to do that? And it's a way that to an extraordinary extent, people in finance ignore. And the answer is to be a specialist. Mm -hmm. So if I've been doing South Texas Gulf Coast onshore oil leases for 20 years, and I know the geology, (laughs) and I know the sellers, and I know the whole market, and you come down from New York and bid against me for a lease, if you buy that lease, if you win that auction, you've made a bad mistake. Because effectively, in some sense, I sold it to you. Right. So you always are going to do better if you're a specialist. That is especially the case in financial services. So a sensible way to value insurance companies is very different from a sensible way to value banks, is very different from a sensible way to value credit card processors, and on and on. I think if you find yourself doing the shortcut and saying, ah, this is cheap mm-hmm. because it's low, you know, it's low market to tangible book. Mm-hmm. And you apply it across the sector and the guy on the other side of the trade understands the difference between insurance companies and banks. Sure. You're going to get yourself in real trouble. That's the first thing. Right. On the other hand, when you look for opportunities from a value perspective, you're looking at what's despised mm-hmm. and people want to shy away from Well, that's a good description of the financial sector. But what I would do is I would say, okay, the financial sector is a good idea. Who are the best financial sector investors? Mm -hmm. So it would be Davis in insurance. They've done insurance for a long time. It would be people who've concentrated in banks for doing banks. And that's the way I would do it. I would not do this at home, kids. Oh, sure. Okay? Yeah. So... On, on sort of in a similar vein, and this, this actually could apply to basically any sector, but you've had a lot of uh, 
headline risk, reputational risk for the financial sector. Uh, we just saw today the headlines are coming out about J.P. Morgan settling the big fines <laughs> yeah. for, the, for the London whale trade. Um, do you, when you're thinking about the value of a company, does reputational risk and, and headline risk come into that at all? Okay. In the long run, the evidence seems to be that as long as it stays out of bankruptcy, reputational risk does not that significantly impair the situation of a company. I'll give you a couple of examples of that. The first was American Express in 1964, and Buffett talks about all this, this salad oil scandal, the stock price falls. Mm -hmm. Ten years later, nobody gives a crap. Okay, it just doesn't have an effect. The latest one, I think, if you think about it, is AIG. Now, AIG does lose a lot of money, but the reputational risk doesn't seem to be the problem anymore. So that even five years after probably the worst malfeasance that's out there, it just is not visible uh, in the overall profitability numbers. So I think reputational risk, and by the way, if Jamie Dimon has learned nothing from this, it's that you don't want to criticize the administration because they'll kill you. Now, <laughs> assuming he's learned that lesson. Hopefully he's learned that lesson by now. The reputational risk is not, you know, I mean, again, do the numbers. So he's paid $800 million mm-hmm. in the fine. What is their quarterly earnings? Four to five billion? Yeah. Okay. It's just not a big number. And it's not, it's, and it's not a, it's not a repeatable mm-hmm. number. Usually that kind of thing is your friend because what you want to buy is disease stocks that are beaten down in price and are a bargain because we know people irrationally shy away from those stocks. They tend to assume that the problems today are going to be the problems forever because they overemphasize certainty. And that's where in a general you want to look so that reputational risk perversely is your friend. But you still have to have the expertise to tell the difference between terminally diseased and versus just a slightly, yeah. slightly just temporarily diseased. Okay. And thinking about the insurance sector, so you mentioned there are like Chris Davis is a is very, very great in the insurance sector. And Warren Buffett is pretty good at Warren it. Warren Buffett <laughs> is bad. But I actually, the, my question was that there are a lot of uh, great investors, uh, Prem Watsa up in, up in Canada. You've got uh, uh, Tom Gaynor at Markel. Uh, you had um, uh, Sim- Lou Simpson working with Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway. What do you think it is that attracts value investors? And these are all value, value investors in particular, or most of them for the most part. What attracts them to that business? I think what you're describing is an optical illusion. Okay. Because I'm going to say something nice about The Motley Fool so you can always edit it out. (laughs) Okay. The Motley (laughs) Fool has a terrific, I think, performance record because it's fundamentally value-oriented. And it's flexibly value-oriented, which I think is very important. I mean, you know that the, uh, God, it's Russo, Gardner, and Russo, that the Gardner of that, which is a famous value firm, right. or it's Gardner, Russo, and Gardner, sorry, is the uncle of the Gardners who are your founders. Mm-hmm. So I think the people they would look at in the insurance business are the people who are the value-oriented mm-hmm. investors. But who invests the money at MetLife? Who the hell knows? Who invests the money at Prudential? Right. Who the hell knows? 
Who invests the money at AIG? Who the hell knows? I mean, don't forget, it's a vast industry out there. Now, there are other no-name companies that actually have pretty good value orientations. Northwestern Mutual is a terrific mm -hmm. uh, operator, but they're also value-oriented investors. It's just they never sell anything, okay. which is not necessarily a good idea. But you can go through the list of insurance companies, and there are a lot of them mm -hmm. who are just pretty ordinary common or garden investors. Okay. So, so not, I guess the question wasn't so much that, that all insurance companies are getting great investors, but that a lot of these investors seem to end up uh, latched on to an insurance company. In well, it's a very stable investor base. I mean, that's the good news. Okay. Uh, so you do have, I mean, look, it is conceivable under a set of, you know, political circumstances in Europe, something terrible happening in Switzerland, mm -hmm. even though they don't sell anything there that Nestle could fall from, what, 62 Swiss francs today to 40 Swiss francs tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But the underlying business isn't going to be impaired. Right. So you need investors who are not going to go nuts and sell you out okay. at those ridiculously low valuations and are going to be willing or are stable enough to provide you, to the res provide you with the resources gotcha. to make good decisions at that point. And I think insurance companies tend to have those characteristics right. because they're a stream of policy premiums that are pretty stable. And actually, something really good is happening in insurance these days, which I think all the insurance companies have noticed. And that is in the old days when insurance companies made a lot of money because premiums were high and their operating ratios were good. They kept hold of the money. Mm -hmm. Their capital base went up and their ability to write insurance went up. And they're insurance guys. If they can write insurance, they'll write insurance. And they don't care much about the price. And what you've seen, starting with travelers, but in all the insurance companies, is they're returning the capital of the stockholders. Mm -hmm. So if that trend holds, you're going to get a lot more pricing discipline and you're going to get a lot better operating ratios than you've had historically throughout the industry. So, uh, yeah, it, it seemed that it's a lot more difficult lately to make up for bad underwriting with good investing. Right. That, and, that, and that's also supported the... Okay. Well, that, that makes sense, though. Uh, the good underwriting. Warren Buffett often talks about educating his shareholders. And so I, I guess when you're, when you're an insurer and you have that float and it's sticking around, then you don't really have to and, worry and about that. And that's a $70 that's... billion dollar float that's growing over time. Sure. That's a very... You look at that float on the balance sheet, it's a very stable... It's not a, not a bad asset for Berkshire shareholders. Right. And it didn't go, you know, you didn't lose two-thirds of your investors or two-thirds of that float in 2008. Exactly, exactly. In terms of the changes that have taken place since the financial crisis, so before the financial crisis and, and still through to today, there are a lot of value investors that appreciate that the, the macro environment makes a difference to how their investments are going to perform, but at the same time say, well, we don't know how to predict the macro environment. And yet there are a lot of investors that are now saying, well, you're crazy to, 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 to try to not try to predict what's going on in the macro environment. Has it changed? Is it different now? I think that for the sensible, sensible value investors, trying to predict the macro environment is not what they do. I think what they've done is they've adjusted their risk management techniques to recognize what the macro environment can do to them. So let me talk about what is the sort of uh, 
value approach to risk management. And it starts not from variance. Variance assumes, by the way, that upward and downward movements are symmetrical. And we know they're not. It also assumes that over time, things are serially uncorrelated. So if it drops this period, you know, if you have a 5% price drop, that's the new base. So essentially, all movements are permanent movements. And we know that there's reversion to the mean especially uh, in individual stocks, which is what value investors depend on to some extent. So the value approach to investment is to protect yourself against permanent impairment of capital. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you think about that, there are three basic ways to permanently impair your capital. The fastest way to do it is to pay $100 for something that's worth 50. And that's why the biggest value technique for risk management is margin of safety, mm-hmm. is to make sure, as sure as you can be, that you're paying less than what the long-term value of that asset is. And that's really what they depended on always in the first instance. It's what Ben Graham talked about. Mm. The second thing is that what will convert a temporary loss into a permanent loss is if you have to sell out or you go bankrupt. So leverage at either the company level or the portfolio level is something you want to avoid. And that's getting back to that, that uh, permanence of capital. Per- permanent, permanent, avoiding permanent impairment of capital. So the second thing I think value investors look for is relatively clean balance sheets mm-hmm. and, or, and or stable enough earnings to support comfortably any debt that's on the balance sheet and not leveraging themselves up okay. too much. The third is diversification, not full diversification, but you're going to make mistakes in valuation. You're going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to have a two to three stock portfolio. Mm -hmm. But when you get above a 15 to 20 stock portfolio, you're pretty well as diversified as you're going to get in terms of spreading out the errors. And mistakes in valuation ought to be unsystematic errors. So if you do those three things, what you're left with is the macro risk. And I think historically what value investors were prepared to do is say, okay, macro changes are temporary changes. I can live with those. I'm not going to worry about them. I think what we understand now is they can be very, very long-lived, both in terms of the unemployment, which is the real fluctuations, and in terms of you know, what they can do to interest rates. Mm-hmm. in trying to fight that. I mean, we've had five years of interest rates that nobody would have believed uh, were possible. That means you've got now, I think, to take a fourth step as a value investor and ask yourself, what's your vulnerability to inflation on the one hand and chronic deflation mm-hmm. on the other? And I think they've always been sort of inflation sensitive. But I think there you'll see that there are three asset classes that you have. You have real assets, natural resources, you know, uh, companies that are competitive companies, real estate. And there you're going to do really well in an inflationary environment and you're going to suffer in a deflationary environment. The second uh, category are fixed income. And that does very well in a deflationary, relatively well in a deflationary environment and very badly in an inflationary environment. And then there are the Nestle's of the world, the franchise businesses, and they do well in both. So I think where value investors now start is they either formally or informally do an inventory of their portfolio. How much of it, and actually by historical standards, the franchise businesses are surprisingly cheap. 
So they buy the cheap businesses with a good margin of safety, either in return space or in value space for the non-franchise stocks. And they look at what they're left with, and they look at their vulnerability to inflation, and they look at their vulnerability to deflation. And then I think they think about hedging those things. And there are three ways that you can hedge. One is assets like gold. That will do typically well if everything turns to crap. (laughs) And I think that's why you want to hold gold. Now, there, there are two reasons. One is that it'll stabilize the notional value. But really, the reason you want to have gold is everything turns to crap. It's not going to turn to crap permanently. It may turn to crap for a long time. But if you have the gold and you have the purchasing power, you'll get some real bargains. On the other hand, if you're not psychologically conditioned so you can sell the gold and buy the stock in March of 2009, that substantially impairs the value of holding assets that are resistant to these systematic failures. So, so keep holding that gold. Right. You keep holding the gold. It's not as valuable as if you're somebody who can uh, use it when it's most valuable in terms of uh, what you can buy for it. So that's one way to do it is by assets that have negative correlations to bad economic conditions. The second way to do it is with shorts. And the problem with shorts is the tax treatment is terrible. Mm-hmm. That in general, stocks outperform sort of short term, which is typically what you're going to hold it in. So that you got a headwind that's pretty substantial, at least 2 to 4%. And the risk characteristics are terrible. Because if it doubles, your position is twice the size, not half the size. And the third way is with derivatives. Okay. You know, puts of various sorts. And the nice thing about derivatives is if you look at 2007, derivatives were incredibly cheap. The, the, you know, the implied volatility on the options that you could buy was under 10%. It turns out the most dangerous times are when nobody thinks there's any danger. And those are the times where derivatives are cheapest. And I think that's what good value investors have been led to think about, okay. which is in these very fraught macro situations, what are the cheapest derivatives that you can get? And if they're very expensive, hey, you may just have to live with the gold as an alternative. Or if there are some small shorts you can do, you may have to learn with that. But I think people have learned to think about their macro vulnerabilities when they think about managing risk, whereas I think in the past, they just would have ignored them. Okay. Okay. So a, a lot of our readers and a lot of the people watching this are new, some, sometimes newer investors and, and may hear you say derivatives, referring to options, and think about that famous Warren Buffett quote, derivatives are financial weapons of mass destruction. So I, I was just going to ask, probably instructive to kind of differentiate what Buffett was talking okay. about. Versus- what Buffett is talking about is people speculating by using derivatives. So a typical call option will be a call option to buy IBM, 100 IBM shares at a price, well, today it would probably be of $175, say. There's a huge amount of leverage in that. Mm-hmm. If IBM goes up 50, you know, to 225, you'll make several times your money. If IBM goes down, you'll just be wiped out. So they're extraordinarily highly leveraged instruments. Yeah. 
And I think people who buy them to make money, it's like buying gold to make money. You're really taking on much more risk than you should be because you can't make a good judgment about what's going to happen in the limited term of the options. And that's not the reason to buy derivatives. What you want to buy derivatives for is if you own the stock and you want to protect yourself, you could sell a call. So that if you thought, you know, at 25% above the current price, you'd be happy to sell it. You can sell a call at, you know, 25% above the current price, which gives somebody the option to buy it from you. Mm -hmm. If the price goes up by more than 25%, you're happy with that. You can calculate what the effect is. If the stock price goes down, you just collect the premium and you're not in any trouble. If it's a covered call, Mm -hmm. you just sell your stock at that price and you don't have any risk. So I think, and I think people exaggerate the sophistication that's required. If you think about buying options that are tied to your existing portfolio and insure against adverse movements in that existing portfolio, stock market goes down, the call expires worthless, and you've collected the premium. Mm -hmm. If you have a put at $200, the stock market goes down, you make the difference between the say $150 price of IBM and the call and and the put price of $200 you pay something for that maybe you can finance it with a call okay but if you look at it in terms of a explicit risk management tool i think you'll do much better <laughs> than if you say hey this is a complicated way to make really good money okay so with, with the derivatives, uh, one of the things that, that we heard a lot at the, the Value Investing Congress is, is about the catalysts for an investment. You, know, you buy, buy a stock, you think it's cheap, and you look for the catalyst that's going to get it there. Do you think it's necessary for an investor to have a, catal- have a catalyst or have a catalyst in mind? Okay, that's a really good question because, again, it comes back to valuation. If your valuation is based is transaction-based, for example, mm-hmm. so you're looking at recent transactions by even informed buyers for cash, mm-hmm. the problem with that is it's always driven by market valuations to some extent. Sure. And if you're doing that, there is a lot of implied risk in that valuation, and you really want a catalyst. That's, that's the basic insight that Mario Gabelli had, because he believed in private market value, and he also understood that private market values were not that stable. Right. And so he wanted catalysts that would realize them as soon as possible. And if nobody else had them, he was going to try and create them, either by you know, touting the stock to somebody who'd buy it out or going to the management and asking them to do something. Okay. So I think that in general, if you don't have a lot of confidence in the valuation, then you've got to have a catalyst. On the other hand, if you have a good margin of safety in even a non-franchise stock where you're not growing, so the stock, you're pretty sure there are real assets there, it's going to be worth $100 a share, Mm -hmm. and you're buying it for $50. If you keep that investment for three years, and it takes three years to realize that value, well, a double in three years is, you know, a 24% return a year. If it's four years, it's an 18% return a year. If it's five years, it's a 14% return plus whatever dividends Mm -hmm. you're getting in the meantime. So I think that if you've got a reliable valuation, you ought to have a lot of staying power. 
and still get a decent return. I mean, I think one of the advantages is of a big margin of safety is it gives you five to three to five years for the market to come around. And if you have patient investors, they're not going to give you a hard time in the meantime. And I think, again, back to the question of insurance, that's the nice thing about having an insurance flow. So I think the issue of catalyst ultimately comes down to an issue of confidence in your valuation. If it's a franchise business and you're getting a decent return, if we're getting our 10% a year for Nestle, and we also think that it's 25% undervalued, how we'd arrive at that calculation, who, who knows? Right. But so we're also waiting for a 25% bump. Don't forget, we're getting 10% a year while we wait as value accrues. So there we can wait five to seven years okay. and we're fine. So again, it depends on the nature of the company, the nature of the valuation that you're doing and the reliability of that valuation. Okay. And so you don't want to just say, oh, I'm, I'm only going to do things with a catalyst. Okay. Well, let me, let me finish up with, a, with kind of a fun one here. We, we heard the, the Winklevoss, uh, uh, Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, talking about Bitcoin. Uh, they're, they're backing and have gotten involved in, in, in Bitcoin. Do you think that this is, that this is something that has, that has legs, maybe can, uh, can steal some market share from traditional banking? I don't think it's traditional banking. I mean, don't forget that what traditional banking does is it enables you to write checks. Mm-hmm. You know, you can or do wire transfers. There is a transaction infrastructure. Right. And if you go back to the traditional definition of money, it's as a medium of exchange. It's as a standard, you know, a measure of value. Okay. And it's as a store of value. So it's a unit of account, it's a medium of exchange, and it's a store of value. Okay. It turns out as a unit of account, nobody's going to price anything in bitcoins. It's always going to be the currency. Sure. Because that's just the dominant way to do it. And there are big network effects from that. It's very hard to get people to change. In fact, they measure the value of bitcoins in, you guessed it, dollars or whatever currency it is. So you're not going to get it as a unit of account. It's not a medium of exchange. You don't have to keep a Bitcoin balance to pay your bills. So what you're left with is a store of value. We got lots of stores of value. Mm -hmm. We got gold. We got all sorts of other kinds of real assets that you can have. We have inflation. You know, we have tips. Mm -hmm. We have all sorts of real stores of value that are probably more liquid than the Bitcoins and are less easier to manipulate and are less subject to sort of insider trading. It's why, look, in the old days, you used to, every bank used to issue its own currency. Oh, right, yeah. And it was very unstable what the relationships between the currencies were. Having lots of different Bitcoins has a lot of the flavor of that, but it's got no natural advantages over gold or any other real measure of value. It's fun to talk about in the meantime. <laughs> I think as a rule, if the Winklevoss twins are talking about it. It's almost certainly opportunistic. And they almost certainly are not the people who know how to make money out of that idea. That's fair. As Facebook showed. Well, that's very fair. <laughs> so you don't want to invest with them. Okay. All right, okay. Professor Greenfold, we, we really appreciate you talking to it's us. It's always Thank a pleasure so to much. talk to you guys. That's our show for today. We hope you enjoyed the interview. We'll be back here tomorrow running an interview with real estate professor Chris Mayer from the Columbia Business School. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then.